The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This episode is a compliment to Apocalypse Camp, the retreat I'm co-leading with my husband, Ruben Anderson, this fall at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center on Cortez Island, which is not actually really called Apocalypse Camp. That's just our pet name for it. If you check out hollyhock.ca, you'll find it under Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead. One of your fellow participants will be this fine lady joining me today, my dear friend, Jessie Hemphill. We connected in person at my office on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations, commonly known as Victoria, BC, which are also shared with the four bands of the Husanich Nation, the Tsekam, Tsartlip, Tseot, and Pukwatchen. Uh, my apologies and respect to the folks at Tsekam for forgetting you in this conversation that follows. It was a hot summer day, the window was open, and sometimes the construction and traffic noises are going to offer little extra dose of realness, but I hope you enjoy hanging with Jesse and me. Check it out. So Jesse, what identities do you lead with? I lead with uh, my Indigenous identity. So often when I'm introducing myself, almost always if I'm introducing myself in a professional context, I say Gela Kisla, Nugwa'am Tlalialogwala, and then I would thank the people whose land I'm on. So, Gela Kisla, Koselish, here's at Lekwangen, Kosanich, Kosanich. And well, the Lekwangen would be um, Songhees and Esquimalt. Yeah. And then all of the Kosanich bands. So, that would be Seot, Sarlip, Pukwachin. Who am I forgetting? Seot, Sarlip, Pukwachin. There's two really important ones. I can't remember them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to Google that. Mm-hmm. It's going to come to me actually later on in this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, then I would acknowledge territories and say, um, thanks, Carmen. So what I just said to you in my language, Nugwa'am, Tlalilugula means my name is. Uh, Tlalilugula, which means bridge between the worlds in one interpretation. And then I said, and actually, I'm going to digress here for a moment, sure. but like that's part of a traditional introduction in Kwakwakwa culture, but the word words, means I come from, and you're supposed to mention a place, and so the idea is that when I tell you the place I come from, you know who I am, oh. and so it should be which is Ba'as is the name of our winter village. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody knows anymore the places that the people come from. And so I think we've transitioned to saying like I come from the the Nakwetel people, but it's not quite the right the right wording. Right. Um, so interesting. But uh-huh. if I if in the past if you'd said I come from Ba'as, I would know that you come from That's right. The Nakwetel people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that explanation too of, of that. So, any other identities? Yeah, um, I am a woman from Vancouver Island, a rural community. Um, I'm a queer woman in a long term hetero marriage to a lovely fellow. Um, I have a lot of European heritage as well, uh, lots of Celtic, mostly Irish, Scottish, and Welsh. 
um, a bit of German and English, and uh, able-bodied, uh, lots of privilege in lots of ways. Um, yeah. hmm. Can you uh, talk a little bit about your um, education? Because I was so thrilled to attend your defense of your yeah. master's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so great. Uh, when you received your master's defending your thesis, uh, you talked about this investigation into whether there could be an indigenous process or protocol or approach to um, urban planning mm -hmm. and design. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that inquiry? Yeah. Um, so maybe an interesting part of that story is I did my undergraduate degree here in Victoria at the University of Victoria in linguistics and indigenous studies which I think fostered an early interest in um, how language can shape the way we see and act within the world, um, but also this interest in worldviews and just this idea of different worldviews. So a couple of years ago, I uh, started the Master of Community Planning program at the Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo. Uh, I started the program after I'd already been an Indigenous planner for uh, you know, eight years, so not new to the field, but I and wanted to go... you also worked in government because you were an elected official. That's right, yeah, twice elected to town council for mm -hmm. Port Hardy, um, and had worked with planners a lot in that context as well, and not really understood their planning language, um, and so I wanted the accreditation. So I went to VIU, uh, it was a great program, nice cohort of 21 other, 21 students, and uh, yeah, so for my thesis topic, I decided that I wanted to, like you say, dig into what would a traditional indigenous approach to urban design look like and what kind of urban design tools might best reflect an indigenous worldview or like manifest an indigenous worldview in the built form. I guess that was my initial inquiry. And I, uh, in Canada, we use zoning a lot to manage land use. So probably most folks uh, in Canada, your town or city or regional district will have zoning bylaws, and they say this part of the you know this part of the land is for residences, this part is for commercial, this part is industrial, this these sections are institutional, uh, and they have a lot of rules of like all the high rises go here, all the townhouses go here, mm -hmm. all the single family homes go here, and they kind of plan it all out at once lay it all down as a, a map of all the different zones, hence the word zoning bylaw, and that governs how the land can be used in those different zones. It's more sophisticated than that for sure, but that's the uh, Cole's notes. And so there is an alternative called uh, generative process approach, or the most commonly used tool in the States is called form-based codes. It's like an alternative to zoning. And so in a form-based code or in a generative approach, rather than mapping everything all out at once and saying all the homes go here, all the businesses go here, you say this is what we want our community to look and feel like. <clears throat> this is the kind of streetscape that feels acceptable. Um, this is how we want things to blend into one another. This is the kind of landscaping we want. This is the kind of like pedestrian space we want and you don't map it all out at once, you create a code so that as new things are built, they have to conform um, to the overall form. 
uh, that that people want to see in their community, if that makes sense. So it's more like are you there grow the community. Are places where I would have seen that just as a traveler, or are they kind of niche little communities that have experimented yeah. with this? I think there's hundreds of them in the state, so it's mm-hmm. possible. I think um, I'm trying to think of a couple. There's a, a design firm, um, Duani Platter Zyberg, DPZ. I might not even be pronouncing that right, but they're uh, part of the new urbanist school of urban design, and so they have really pioneered form-based codes and done them all over the states. Mm-hmm. I think Seaside, Florida, um, is an example of a form-based code community, but maybe one of the bigger ones is Miami. Hmm. So, uh, just in the last decade, Miami abandoned their um, or left their zoning bylaw to um, instead embrace a form-based code. Mm. And I don't know how how that's going for the city of <laughs> Miami. And there's certainly other examples like Houston where they don't have zoning. Um, it's kind of parcel by parcel planning. Mm. And there's been some criticism of the fact that because of that, when some of the flooding and disasters have hit Houston, they were not prepared mm. uh, to handle it because things hadn't been sort of master planned. So, mm. you know, there's stories, pros and cons on either side, but I just thought that this kind of organic approach to urban design could maybe hold some potential for indigenous communities instead of zoning. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to investigate. So. You just mentioned that you were undertaking this inquiry with Indigenous communities in mind. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically my own. Specifically at the north part of what we call Vancouver Island, but your ancestral homelands. On the mainland. On the mainland, mm-hmm. right. And so one of the things that was a big takeaway for me <laughs> was that there is no <laughs> protocol. Uh-huh. There is no, it's about process. It's about engagement. Totally. Like if you were to summarize what your findings were for, for the rest of us, because of course the great hope is like, oh, and if it works for indigenous communities, then all of these cities that need revamping or that are changing either because populations moving away or populations uh-huh. moving in, wouldn't it be great if we could use an indigenous approach? What did you find? Well, yeah, like you say, I found, I think when I started out, what I thought I would find is like there's some inherent logic to the big house form, you know, a big multifamily house. And so maybe that built form needs to be recaptured in the way we build buildings. Or maybe there's some inherent wisdom in the orientation of buildings to the water. And so maybe we should try and do that. And I think where I got to in the end is like, those things are so contextual, <laughs> uh, so dependent on the place and what's happening in the culture at that moment, how people are living their lives, you know, all these things, um, that it is very superficial to presume that you can discern much about what a community should do uh, by what it looks like. Mm. Like you can't, you can't look at a community, it's built form, and go, well, this is not indigenous. This clearly doesn't reflect indigenous values because it comes down to how people are living their lives in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And so what I had wanted to do was like look at a bunch of traditional village forms and go, okay, here are the things that show up in all of them. Here's the code. We should build buildings this high. They should look like this. Roads, if we build them, should be like this. And this, you know, I wanted to basically create an architectural code that was based in our old villages and I think the place I got to is that that 
is just too superficial and that represents a very sort of quote-unquote Western way of looking at community building that what would be much better would be to focus on cultural revitalization and and working with the community themselves to discern what kind of built form um, reflects the way we want to live our lives uh, and trying to think together about how built form can enhance the cultural values that we hold dear, like um, respect for the planet and respect for large family groups and bringing young folks and elders together in one household. Like some of these cultural values, I can't presume uh, to know how to design and presume that everyone you know, wants to prioritize those values, but maybe working together, we could come up with something that would fit. Mm-hmm. And like you say, that it's the process of doing it together that is an important part of Indigenous planning and urban design, mm-hmm. that collectivism, as opposed to planner as individual expert, I know best here, now I've done it all for you, and you can just build your house over there. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned that there are examples of cities who... Um, well, there's countless examples of cities who have experienced environmental crises, and we look back and go, who are the engineers? Who mm-hmm. are the planners? Like, this this is a catastrophe. This yeah. is a disaster. Um, so I'm curious, as a person who's, like, traveling across the country of Canada, mm-hmm. um, visiting a lot of communities, and, and, and as a planner walking through the world, so there's some communities that are more rural, um, indigenous communities, but also, like, you know, you might just be walking through Vancouver or Toronto or something. I'm curious as a planner, how much does climate change uh, influence your thinking? How much do you think of it every day? And then how much does it actually come up in professional context? Right. So, man, I think about it every day and I pack an emergency kit with me everywhere I go. I have like a purse one that is what I would need to like walk back to my home base. Mm -hmm. But then I have a backpack one I take traveling, even if I'm traveling carry-on. And in there I have things like a headlamp, water purification tablets. I added some pandemic supplies, like a face mask and gloves. Um, I have radiation tablets. You know, I have like a handful of things in there. And that's my kit. Like if I was in a big disaster in a city, I could probably get by for at least a couple days with what's in that kit. And I take it with me everywhere. So I do think about this and I think I do get a feeling of of like low level panic too when I'm in a city where it doesn't feel like there is refuge. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking of Toronto. So I remember I was a couple years ago, I was in Toronto for a few days kind of on my own for a meeting and just walking around the city, just noticing the absence of public water, mm-hmm. <laughs> public like park space just seeing how tall the buildings were and just recognizing the danger all around. Um, And everything seemed to be private. Like there was no place where people were gathering or there seemed to be a lot of like food, I don't know, these different things, shelter. And that was really unsettling just to think like, man, if there was an earthquake here, like we would be so hooped. I mean, you'd be hooped anywhere, but it feels worse in a city like that. And... um, Conversely, a city like Victoria, I think, where, you know, the the ocean's right there, like there's green space everywhere. The city has done a great job of making things walkable. There's bike lanes. Things aren't so tall. Um, I don't know. It just feels 
more fine-grained like the urban design is more fine-grained so there's more diversity within a city block mm. uh, of land uses um, you can find you know there's the urban farm on Balmoral there's some of these these things we could use a lot more of that um, urban farms community gardens that kind of thing but yeah I think that fine-grained that diversity there's something in the human spirit that resonates with diversity visually um, and in terms of use and so it feels good to be in a place where there's lots of things happening around you. Mm -hmm. Do you talk about this uh, at work and with clients and do you find that the talk actually does translate to investment? Yeah this is a good question so when I was in planning school we talked a lot about how climate change impacts the work of planners and also how the legacy of planning is um, so much of the environmental degradation that we see. So the mm. development of suburbs uh, and and the need for these big highways to get people into the cities, that's a direct result of the separation of land uses. So creating commercial hubs in the center, putting all the houses outside, making people feel like we need to live in single-family homes mm -hmm. that planners did that <laughs> so right. all of that commuting that takes place all of the sort of food deserts that's the legacy of planners so we spent a lot of time talking about the damage that has been done by thoughtless planning by modernist planning mm -hmm. um, and definitely there are some folks who specialize in climate change adaptation planning and other planners who bring a climate change, like a, you know, a resilience lens to their planning work. But it does seem like there's, it's almost like with capitalism, there does seem to be a feeling in some of the old guard, like we're too far in it now, mm. we can't actually plan for the apocalypse, and mm. so let's just carry on status quo and build some... Um, you know, allow for some food gardens and some backyard bees and call it a day. <laughs> right. Um, and then you're on your own. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. And of course, different municipalities have really different approaches. So some, again, Victoria, I think, has been really lucky to have some really progressive folks on council for a long time. Uh, shout out to Mayor Helps mm -hmm. and uh, to my friends on council here, Ben Isaac and Jeremy Loveday, I think pushed really hard for sustainability, food security, equity, all these kinds of things, but that's not the case everywhere. So I think planners are also beholden to their elected leaders uh, and, and their political will. And so it's just very complicated. But at the end of the day, <laughs> nobody is making hard decisions um, in favor of resiliency or carbon reduction mm. at anywhere near the scale that that should be happening. Mm -hmm. Nobody is. I think even in the most progressive places, that's still not happening. So different people are trying harder, but nobody's really seemed to be grappling with the reality of it, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so we come back to uh, what you were, you know, the, the idyllic, um, intention in the beginning of like well what if we were to plan in a more indigenous way and actually it's about cultural revitalization and so it brings us back to kind of a family or community unit in yeah. terms of being resilient well did, sorry go ahead and just to add one thing in there too I still believe that indigenous communities in Canada are perfect opportunities for um, like piloting quote-unquote because it's really just re 
doing uh, community planning and community design in a way that could be a model for the rest of the world because I think for one our communities at least in BC tend to be geographically small so it's a great like experimental site a lot of us have had no planning or urban design historically or else it's been terrible and so there's a lot of need for good planning and and good community building a lot of our communities already have phenomenal community engagement processes in place and good community planning processes so we already have the kind of public will to engage in these discussions about what our community should look like and then with the changing sort of federal and provincial attitudes about land rights. So mm-hmm. British Columbia is unceded territory. Mm-hmm. And so indigenous communities across the country are regaining, in the eyes of the federal and provincial government, regaining a lot more jurisdiction, although we would say we always had it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of latitude to do whatever the heck we want on, on our territories. And so all of those things make it... And then we have these like traditional values of sustainability, respect for the land, collectivism, consensus building and so I think all those factors go to make indigenous communities the perfect opportunities to show the rest of the world what you know um, resiliency adaptation truly sustainable um, design and planning can look like Mm -hmm. do you find your home community receptive then when you talk about okay so as we're visioning what we want to do um let's talk about huge tsunamis since we've experienced that historically like do you find that there's a lot of receptivity maybe more so than when there's um you know provincial or federal government layers that are involved with the community level for you how do you find that yeah people are really um interested in talking about that my community guasanakuro has had a really good emergency management program for years Mm And that's thanks to our public works coordinator, Bob Swain, who's pushed really hard in that regard. So I think people are really used to having those conversations. We put up a tsunami siren on reserve, uh, and the town doesn't have one. There's a lot of reasons for that, and fair enough. But I think people are very committed to Mm. having discussions about the impacts of climate change and, um, and trying to deal with them, for sure. That doesn't always translate to the staff, who are maybe not from the community, but are coming in and actually making decisions. Mm. Um, but definitely at the community level, people are are prepared to make decisions that will protect, you know, the generations into the future. Mm-hmm. In your own family, do you uh, come from a family of preppers? Yeah. <laughs> do they? I or totally you do. Avant garde that way. <clears throat> no, my family's all. I mean, I'm like maybe the most. Uh, vocal about it but but they all are in the same boat Um, my dad built the house that my parents live in on the reserve up in Port Hardy and when he built it he overbuilt it so it could withstand some earthquake action and big storms but he also wired 12 volt wiring all through it so that in a power outage you can run lights and maybe other things off a car battery in the basement nice and the other day I was there and I was talking to mom about like maybe it would be wise to set up a fallout shelter in the crawl space and just put some water and bedding and stuff and she's like that's a great idea oh so they're they're keen yeah they're totally with you oh i love yeah that. we they almost moved us out to an island when i was 12 years old we spent a summer on hope island um no they got a generator working but no running water you know we're really like we're living in a house but but really self-sufficient 
And there was a moment of contemplation of like, maybe we want to raise our kids out here and like get a horse and grow our own yeah. food. And uh, in the end, they decided to go back to Port Hardy and, um, and carry on there. But I think that's really interesting. So what would you say right now is your um, biggest challenge with your personal preparedness? Like, would you say, um, it sounds like you're uh, probably totally on top of the earthquake thing. So mm-hmm. what about stuff like drought? fires, food security, like distance from your family, like what would you say is like the, the tough uh, choices that you're making right now? Well, food security is really tricky for sure, like storage of food, because really the quantity of food that you need in a longer term disaster is so huge and my husband is a large hungry man (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and so we are not great in that regard we have some food stashed away but we could be way more on the ball and we've talked about building one of those wall shelves where you can rotate canned Mm -hmm. goods you know and but but we definitely have a weakness in that regard Um, I think also uh, we probably think we're better prepared than we actually are mm. um and I so, think we're like that too yeah there's yeah. a false comfort that comes from having an earthquake kit and you're like I'm so, good bring on the nuclear disaster so in actuality yeah. that would be well and even food security like we're like we have a garden and look at these things but like seriously if we actually had to make meals yeah like maybe a week right like we we it, it takes a long time to get succession planting down to a fine art and uh-huh. you know I always think about um like if I've never done anything 10 times and been good at it and so if I think about growing tomatoes 10 times that's a decade right right and so it's like wow we have to, oh look at your face you're like oh no. my god no it's true we don't even grow vegetables I have a black thumb Jemaine's a good gardener but we just are not home enough to maintain it mm-hmm. um yeah, so that's a big a big worry. And a kit is only going to get you so far. I think at this point we could be self-sufficient for like 72 hours, mm-hmm. maybe a week, maybe two on the outside. But definitely in terms of long-term resiliency, we have a long ways to go. Mm-hmm. What would you say are like your strengths then right now? What are you in, investing in? Well, we we do have good kits. Like, like I say, we have good supplies in the event of a pandemic or at least... I should say we have supplies in the event of a pandemic. Um, we so, okay, let's slow this down because I was very self-conscious about like having a hazmat kit. Right. And you were the one person who like messaged me and were like, "Tell me what's in your kit." What yeah, you got in your kit. That's and right. I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll tell you. That's right. And that's, then I went and ordered a bunch of stuff on Amazon. Yeah. So we've yeah. got latex gloves for me and Jemaine, different sizes. Different sizes. Yeah. We've got two Tyvek suits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got eye masks. I got extras Ooh, too. Eye masks. I've got the face. Yeah. I've got the really good face masks yeah, and got lots those. for extra people and the lots N95. of gloves. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I yeah. don't have eye goggles. Why do yeah, I Yeah, you know, like the lab goggles. Yeah, exactly. If, yeah, I guess it was the Ebola outbreak yes. was happening. Yeah, that that's when this... I started to freak out about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so your eyes are really vulnerable to mm-hmm. spraying blood or yeah. other fluids. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so we've got an I'm extra still, of everything. I feel the kinship. Thank you for just like <laughs> saying that publicly and vulnerably because that's the one that people are like what I'm like are you kidding in a situation where let's say something we're all ready for happens like an earthquake guess what this is where disease starts to grow oh my gosh totally 
Yeah. I'm really lucky too that my husband Jermaine is, is really on board with this stuff. So mm-hmm. he's like all in on, on prepping. We uh, at one point we were sitting around, I'm like, you know, we have our pandemic stuff in the trunk of our car, but if we ever drove into a situation where it was happening around us, you don't want to get out of the car and go to the <laughs> trunk to get your stuff. So then we started putting a couple face masks and yeah. a couple pairs of gloves in the console of the yeah. car. Good idea. And I, maybe that's overkill, but it doesn't take any space at all, really. But and even so, if you came, yeah, if you came across a car wreck or something, you know, they totally. say have your little face mask to do CPR, like right. on your keychain or whatever. So yeah, having a couple gloves in your in your glove compartment seems totally reasonable to me. Yeah, I think one of our other big strengths is because I'm a facilitator, I feel like I have really good skills working with no tools, no technology, no computers, no paper, working with other people to resolve conflict and make decisions collectively quickly. Mm. And I think that um, it's really clear that in disaster, it's the strength of your community that gives you resilience. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the model of the preppers who have their stash of guns and the bunker and the wall that's going to go up, and that's crazy. Mm -hmm. But the people that actually thrive in emergencies, and this has been well documented, the people that actually thrive are those that have a community that comes together and helps each other out. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in that model. And so I feel like my facilitation skills are going to be so helpful. Um, and and just that planning lens too of like okay here's a problem or a challenge in the environment and there are ways to you know reduce the challenge and we can work together to find those mm-hmm. and just how do you you plan in a way that uh, isn't gonna make things worse down the road mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense to me and yeah it is there's there is a whole um, it takes a long time to not only figure out what your prepping plan is, your emergency preparedness is going to look like, but also then to just um, invest the money, invest the time, Mm -hmm. learn, practice the skills. That takes a long time. So yeah, we, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it was like all about um, getting the kits for earthquake. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, preserving food, growing, preserving. Mm -hmm. Um, Then it starts to get like, oh, I think we need to make sure that our community is taken care of. We mm-hmm. probably need extras of all of these things. Yeah. Over time, we start to invest a bit more in facilitation skills, mm-hmm. communication mm-hmm. skills, conflict resolution mm-hmm. skills, and then eventually it's like trauma. How do we do That's the relational right. piece of being together while we're in the midst of chaos yeah. and making sure that we're attuning and um, and then the, the recovery period, even when things supposedly get back to normal there's these long partial recovery periods Mm -hmm. where that's where we have to be taking that trauma-informed approach yeah it's true my communities are not necessarily strong in being able to be in the grief and the anger without wanting to suggest solutions Mm. and uh, I really appreciate our friendship because I feel like it is a space to explore the grief that comes with um destruction of the climate but also the grief that comes with feeling like disaster is somehow imminent um and like recognizing that you can be in the grief and the anger and it doesn't mean you're a weak person or like you're not also doing things in the background mm-hmm. to try and prevent disaster and deal with it but and you're not losing your shit yeah you're not hysterical all the time 
That's you're right. not constantly like a you know anxious wreck right. or something. It's like yeah. I can talk about yeah, you know, having a smoky, hazy day because of wildfires in the mm-hmm. distance spikes my you know, econo- my climate apocalypse anxiety, yeah, that spikes, but I have all these skills that help me manage and fortunately more community than ever. Yeah. So we've talked about this before, but um, I just could hear you talk forever about what indigenous communities can teach us about surviving apocalypse and, and um sustaining life even as collapse is occurring all around with the history of genocide in this country that's pretty fresh yeah well maybe this goes back to the thesis a little bit because one of the most beautiful things that i learned about our traditional approach to urban design i was interviewing elders and one of the elders was um elder thomas henderson senior he's the hereditary chief for the nakta people and i was asking him when our ancestors, when our elders built the village at Baas, which is really famous for this boardwalk on the beach and then all these houses behind it, when they were building it, how did they decide what should go where? Thinking that he was going to say, oh, the biggest family goes in the most convenient spot or, you know, these like practical factors. He said, well, the way they did it was they, there was this one family that were all really small people And so it was really hard for them to pack all the gear they needed to move to the fishing places, the berry picking places. And so they took that family and they put them right next to uh, where the boats would be tied up so they didn't have as far to go. And then they took the most elderly family or couple that needed the most help and kind of checking in from people and they put them right at the middle of the village so that when people pass by, they would always pass by their house and see if they needed firewood or could stop in to visit and then proceeded to build the village that way. And like, that is... I feel, I'm tearing <laughs> up. Right? <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine if we built cities by thinking about who are the most vulnerable people and how can we place them so that the most uh, successful people, the strongest people are actually caring for the most vulnerable people. Like mm-hmm. imagine if we designed cities like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that for me was such a nice planning slash urban design example of this philosophy, this worldview of, like you say, collectivism and and trying to take care of others and that your strength and your success is only valuable if it enables you to support those that are more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that Indigenous communities probably all over the world have a lot to teach in terms of how to weather catastrophe by coming together by uniting um oral history is a powerful thing you know when you think of the physical destruction that happened in all of our communities uh, and of course the epidemics you know the population loss that happened after the epidemics made this so challenging but the fact that some people still had memory of the entire history of their people and didn't you know it's not like if you lost the family tree piece of paper it's all gone it was in their memories and they were able to pass it on a lot of it and so skills around oral history um, but then maybe more than anything else is responsiveness to the natural environment the terminology there's so tricky like what's natural yeah but but I guess that 
being able to see the world as an intelligent system that you are a part of and like a sacred part of, but you're certainly not the master of it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of humility when it comes to all of creation and trying to move through the world in a way that's respectful of the sacredness of, of other life. Um, I think, and this is the beauty of the diversity among indigenous peoples, is that every different place demands a different relationship, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can't just grow potatoes in every corner. Yeah. <laughs> um, or chickens, or you know, you have to be respectful of the particular place. And so indigenous cultures, that's why we need to foster the resilience of all indigenous peoples because they all have a unique relationship to their homelands and a unique insight into how to respectfully live uh, in balance with those homelands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so useful to keep in mind. Um, we joke in our house about, like, nobody said you get to have tomatoes in December, you know, so when right. people critique the 100-mile diet kind uh -huh. of thing, and it's like, we think a lot about, um, so what what were they eating, and what if we're going to cultivate here, because I come from a lineage of cultivators, of mm -hmm. land changers, how do I strike a different balance here? And, um, boy, gardening will really... Uh, I mean, I love that humility and, and humus soil have the same root, right? It will bring right. you very low as you discover certain things grow in certain places and other things, it's just too much effort. There's too much input of right. fertilizer and all of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so in that context, isn't it, isn't it crazy that we ever turned away from harvesting what grew naturally to yeah. cultivate things that don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and harvesting from sea or like even That's animal right. husbandry that was in a scale that could fit in your village. Like you would bring those houses in um, some parts of Europe where the cattle are on the main floor and everybody lives totally. above because the heat is so good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's other ways. Yeah, exactly. So I think our people, well, for one thing, they moved to where the foods were plentiful. So they right. moved with the seasons. So yeah. there was like one particular, you know, Deserters Island is really well known as a good halibut fishing site and a good seaweed harvesting site. So when it's the time of year for those things, you go there. Mm -hmm. You don't try and yeah. grow halibut or seaweed yeah. at home. <laughs> right. And when it's good berry picking season here, you go there. And mm -hmm. when it's a salmon run, you go to the rivers. And if salmon aren't in your territories, you trade what you do have, you know? Mm -hmm. And that idea of moving with the seasons and that your whole life really in the, the growing time of the year, the warm months, is about food harvesting. Mm -hmm. I think that's really key. And that's not to say that people just took whatever, like not to say that people didn't have a role um, there's been a lot of good research on this in the last years, but you know our elders could have told you that we we cultivated what was already there. So we get clam mm -hmm. gardens, right, where people right. aerated the sand mm -hmm. um, to enable shellfish to grow larger and would seed certain parts of the beach so that mm -hmm. it was like a, literally a clam garden. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other places where people, you know, did burns in fields. I think in the camas fields, didn't they do burns yeah. once in a while mm -hmm. to infuse nutrients into the mm -hmm. soil and kill back some of the brush that would compete. Mm -hmm. um, there was like selective pruning of berry bushes to make them more productive, but all in a way that would 
enhance what was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a beautiful article, I want to say it came from the Atlantic, and it's about the impact that Indigenous peoples have had on on the earth via terraforming. Mm. And there's some incredible stats in there about the Amazon rainforest and how the Indigenous peoples down there um, discovered soil that had a plethora of microbes and they would bring the soil wherever they went and it would create this fertility wow. in the soil. And that's in a large way responsible for the productiveness for the of the rainforest. Wow. We totally underestimate the role that people had in in cultivating the landscape, right. but it was just not, it was meant to enhance what was already working there yeah. rather than replace it with something from England. Yeah, imported. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So given that your climate change anxiety, like mine, is just sort of constant low grade, it's just like always <laughs> present, yeah. right? How do you, even amidst that and alongside that, uh, seek joy, find beauty. Is there any part of your preparedness that provides beauty mm-hmm. and joy and happiness for you, or is it all kind of anxious, fear-based stuff? You know, it's not anxious at all. It makes me feel really good to prepare these things, and um, I do take some pleasure in, in putting the kits together because um, it feels like I'm taking care of my future self. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, we, Jermaine and I, uh, we just went to a blues festival down in the States and it was a week long uh, series of workshops and all these different instruments and then like some festivals near the end of the week for the public. And our house kind of became the party house for the musicians that were there that were on faculty. And so for three or four blissful nights, mm-hmm. we had like dozens of incredible musicians in the house playing music like just jamming literally to like five six in the morning uh we're so exhausted when we got home but one of our reflections on the way home is like why did that feel so magical like we were transported into a different world like I felt like I was in a movie about my life that I would aspire to the last night you know the last handful of us went down to the beach and like sang songs and played music on the beach as the sun came up and we're trying to think of all these songs about the sun and the moon. (laughs) Um, You know, we played games, improvisational games and one of the things Jermaine and I, the realization we came to is like, you have to be so present to improvise music well with other people and you also have to be really generous to stay up till five or six in the morning when you know you have to get up at nine or ten and like just play music all night and no one's paying you there's no there's no like glory in this but the pleasure of it Mm -hmm. and I guess the the beautiful thing is that there are so many people out there who are willing to pour their time and energy into this creative generosity and if you can connect with those folks and find those ways to be present in the moment in grace you know in beauty and create something magical together, I think that is an essential um, skill to cultivate and also an essential aspect of a a resilient community. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I think we put a lot of effort into cultivating our artistic abilities as well as our practical abilities so that you can process the emotions, process the grief, process the change uh, and create beauty for other people around you as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, you are such a generous spirit, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Your 
thank you for your service <laughs> to the world. It's so great to be able to connect and share with you the kind of, um, yeah, like I don't, I don't really, I, I joke about it being climate change or anxiety, but I don't actually have any of the symptoms of anxiety. It's really grief. And to be able to share yeah. that and just be like, oh, this is a lot to process. And then have you as a model for like how to be generous and really try to provide more than people mm-hmm. think they need because we suspect we will need more than, than we've been doing. Like, I really appreciate doing that. So thank, thank you, you very much for sharing your stories. and Yeah, it makes me feel good. Yeah. I was raised that way and like it's a lot of grief in our world too. Um, and I definitely agree with the sentiment that you know when you spread the grief around you take a little piece of it off yourself mm-hmm. and it it might feel uncomfortable for other people to pick a piece up but it is more comfortable for the person that's carrying the heavy weight of it and so I'm happy to share in other people's grief and take a little piece of that um, and also grateful for opportunities like this to share share some of my own and I know like it's funny this podcast doesn't feel grievous <laughs> yeah but it's almost like um this com- this obligation to have these kinds of conversations is like a duty somehow and that's a sad thing we have to talk about this shit yeah. so we have to talk about like dealing with pandemics and earthquakes and and the inevitable warming of the atmosphere like that's a what a raw deal mm-hmm. um but important to do and it is it does strangely I totally agree with your sentiment that like it makes me feel good I actually feel super um I feel connected to my most loving and generous self when I'm thinking ahead to prepare for like what will my child need if Mm -hmm. I'm not here what would my husband need what Mm -hmm. what how prepared are our neighbors and like Mm -hmm. what would be a comfort what would be um something that could inspire play or release or what would be a little treat that I can Mm -hmm. tuck in here that will like be something that yeah my future self is like oh thank god I did that Uh you know um and it's not just about trying to control the environment so I can feel empowered it's about yeah sending like a little nurturance into the future for whoever is there to receive it that's that feels really good yeah, I think there are people that come at it like, well, if I do all this, then I'll never be unsafe. It's like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you are going to be so unsafe. Yeah. And like, hopefully this stuff will help you, but you won't know for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you might not even be there to enjoy it. That's so make right. sure you tell everybody where it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jesse. I totally love talking with you. And um, man, I hope we end up somewhere close together and <laughs> in the new times yeah yeah thank you too carmen and uh you know what nanaimo and victoria aren't that far no <laughs> just hop in the kayak and come down that's and right check exactly. out we've we'll got your water pantry. highway that's right <laughs> i love her you know jesse is co-founder of alder hill planning 
which is an indigenous owned and operated planning company. You can hire her and her partners and they can support your council or government or I suppose community organization with comprehensive community planning, strategic planning, policy development, um, facilitation, community engagement. Check them out and you can read Jesse's thesis on indigenizing urban design at alderhill.ca. And if you'd like to come hang out with me and Jesse and Ruben and other very cool, generous, happy people who also happen to be very collapse aware, or if you'd like to book a session with me to process your eco grief one-on-one, go to my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>